All right, very good. Howdy, everybody. Uh, Rick Clark here with Farm Green. We are in for a treat this evening. We've got two bachelors of soil health, and we are ready to rock and roll. And I'll tell you what, I'm not going to waste any time on introductions. We all know who these two folks are, Russell Hedrick, Lance Gunderson. Uh, we're going to get into this, and I'm going to start with my usual thing. Giddy up, let's go. Russell, I'm going to start with you. What is on your mind right now? The, I guess the biggest concern on our mind is uh, we're getting planting equipment ready for the spring rush, trying to a uh, few fields that we're going to apply some lime to and, and really just battling the weather and all the craziness going on in the world right now. Keep our heads down and farm on. Yeah, that's, uh, there's a lot going on and there's so much uncertainty, but you're right. You got to kind of worry about what you're doing and put your head down and roll. Yeah. Lance, what, what's on your mind right now? Well, I think it's a combination really of, you know, high input prices, but also coupling that with, you know, some of these higher commodity prices. So I'm hearing a lot of people say, you know, I'm going to go out and tear some things up that we haven't farmed in a while. You know, they're going to be probably pushing boundaries on on marginal lands to put in some of these crops and chasing high commodity price. But, uh, you know, I guess I just wouldn't put all my eggs in one basket, especially with all these high high input costs. Yeah, it um, you know, it's hard to it's hard to push the pencil on this stuff now. But for one thing, the price has changed, I think, hourly, if not you know, daily for sure, if not hourly. So it's really hard to know. And then I think there's those, there are pockets out there where uh, the, the farmers aren't even guaranteed they might get some of these inputs. So it really now lends toward this, this conversation of regenerative ag. We've got to start becoming less dependent on these, on these inputs and start incorporating these practices into our, our systems and, and seeing how far we can take this. So Thanks, guys. It's an honor for you guys being on here tonight. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, I admire both of you gentlemen. Uh, Lance, I want to start with you tonight. Um, give us a little background, if you would, of, of where you came from. Were you always on this mindset that you have today? How did you get here? Oh, uh, yeah. So it's, it's been a long road, it seems like. Um, I'm going to start clear back to when I was five. Okay. I will fill the hour and a half of talking about my life when I was five. No, uh, I, hey, Russell, I, we'll see you next time. <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming, Russell. Uh, so, you know, I, I wanted to be a marine biologist, uh, but since I was five years old, I knew I wanted to study biology. And uh, I took an opportunity to work in a lab. And uh, in 2010, I kind of decided to mold agriculture and biology together. I got started with uh, doing a master's program, developing commercial soil testing centered around soil biology. I kind of always thought that'd just be a stepping stone and then I'd move on um, and go into something else. But really I, what kind of kept me in this field was were the people. Yeah. Uh, I started to meet all these producers that were out there uh, trying to, to do right and do better. And, you know, not, not just for profitability on the farm, but for the climate, for their grandkids, all of those things. And uh, anyway, I, that really kind of kept me in this. And, and I really saw the momentum building towards this and the need for it. Um, not just from a climate mitigation standpoint or a water quality standpoint, but it was really interesting to me is that 
oftentimes farmers are looking for for like one number, right? We run soil tests and they want one number to summarize a very complex system. The interesting thing for me is that regenerative agriculture as a practice, as a whole, as a concept, is that one number because it helps solve climate change, it helps solve water quality, nutrient density, carbon cycling, water infiltration, profitability, economics. So all through regenerative agriculture, no matter your motivation as a consumer, a producer, um, a conservationist, et cetera, you can solve all of these complex problems by just going through these practices. And that is something that you don't find very often. It's amazing to me. Yeah, that's, that's ourselves, right. Yeah, that's very refreshing, Lance. I mean, you nail absolutely nailed the whole concept there. Um, there's just so many good things that come out of this that, that we, we haven't even touched on yet. Um, so thank you for that that fresh thought. Uh, Russell, I want to go with you now. Let's go back. Now, you're a first-generation farmer, so have you always had these these practices in, in year one, or were you what I call a ground pounder to get started, even though you haven't been doing this for very long? Well, Rick, I'm kind of like Lance. When, when I was five years old, I just wanted to be a farmer and a Sasquatch, and here I am killing it. <laughs> um, so... You know, when when I went into farming, it was kind of interesting. Um, you can call it grace or luck or, or whatever it may be, but we leased our first 30 acre farm and we had a winter erosion issue. We had issues with uh, with annual weeds that were predominantly big in our area. I just happened to, you know, stumble into a soil and water district office and um, I pretty much told them that, you know, we were fighting these two issues and this guy named Lee Holcomb who's a uh, NRCS, uh, he was a DC at the time. He was kind of like a friendly neighborhood cover crop drug dealer. And he kind of poked his head out in the hallway and he was like, hey, can I tell you about cover crops and, and these no-till practices? And we were fortunately too broke to buy a big tractor and a disc and, and kind of do the conventional setup. And with him explaining to us the, the fuel savings, the smaller equipment that we could get into agriculture with utilizing these these practices before we even knew what they really were. Um, that kind of gave us the push to not having that generational background. I had no idea what was right or wrong. So we really just kind of picked what made more sense. And and that really helped us go down that path. Yeah. And you've you've met some some great people to help help moving you down this path too. I, I really have. We've uh we've been very fortunate. The the thing I'll say about you know, people that are in the soil health journey or regenerative farming journey, they seem like they're they're willing to share their stories, their ups and downs. And um, it really has saved us a lot of headaches in the 10 years we've been farming now. Yeah, I think it's very important. Uh, you know, all three of us on this show this evening, we all speak out in public along with a lot of other people. But it's very important that not only do we talk about all the good stuff, we've got to talk about some of those things that just aren't quite the way that you thought they were going to work out. You know, as you guys know, I don't like the word failure. I, I like to say things like outcomes I didn't expect. And then how are we going to work on those outcomes and change them and, and not have that happen again? But, you know, Russell, you're so right on because when you go to these events, these conferences, everyone up on that stage is just pouring it out, man. It's all out laid out on that on that stage, and 
and it's all there for that audience to soak in. And when that audience hears that coming from a farmer or or a scientist like Lance, uh, it means something. It, it goes home with them, you know. So, you know, what do you think about that, Russell? All the people you've influenced, how's that how's that fit into your what you thought this would be 10, 12 years ago? 10, 10, 12 years ago, I figured I would still be a full-time fireman and and farming maybe 100 acres. Um, I, I would say that we were really blessed to to be able to look at the value-added markets where we vertically integrated and and been able to add acreage and, and you know, to make our living off of the land, whether it be straight through grain or, or through a value-added product. I never thought, I never once thought that I would have been to the states and the countries and the places I've been to, but I think it I think it comes down to being at the right place at the right time and, and really just being willing to share everything we've done. Yeah. Well, we thank you uh, for everything you've done and, and don't, please don't stop. Keep, keep pushing forward. Lance, let's go over to you now. Let's talk about, let's talk about uh, soil. Uh, what's going on in the soil. Uh, I, you know, it, there's so much we don't understand. I mean, the, I don't know, there's billions of, of, of microbes below our feet and we don't know but just a small part of them. Um, how, do you, how do you constantly, or what are you looking for to continually push that edge? Okay, how do we find that next sector of microbes that we can wake up and, and turn them on? How, how, do, how do you do that? Well, yeah, I, I think, you know, 10 years ago when I kind of started down this path, um, like most people, I... I walked out of college with a, you know, bachelor's degree and I thought, well, okay, I'm pretty smart. And then I realized when I started my master's program, we covered my entire undergraduate program in five days. Wow. And then it got even worse when you go in for a PhD and you cover all of that in about the first two hours of class and you walk away, hopefully should walk away very humbled and understanding that you really don't know anything. And uh, <laughs> therefore, I guess I chose a career path to just keep me in that loop because uh, it turns out every time we answer a question, we've got 10 more that pop up that we don't have an answer to. Um, but with that being said, it's, it's not a hopeless effort. Uh, so one of the things that we're really <clears throat> exploring, obviously technology in agriculture um, has really allowed farmers to do things that they couldn't do 30 years ago. And, and that's true in all aspects of our lives, right? So we're leveraging those types of technologies uh, in the laboratory. One of the newer uh, types of analyses that's really been gaining popularity in the last three to five years is metagenomics. So recently, Regen Ag Lab partnered with Biomakers. Uh, Biomakers is a metagenomics analysis company, came out of the medical world, uh, I always tell people it's kind of like a PLFA analysis on steroids. Uh, for those of you not familiar with PLFA, that is that is a technique to look at a microbial community, looking at like fungi versus bacteria. Uh, but with the metagenomics analysis, we're able to actually identify hundreds of different species, even thousands, mm. uh, looking for various disease organisms, uh, nutrient mobilizers. This is what's really interesting. Uh, so a conventional soil test or, or a nutrient analysis might tell you that, you know, your soil has enough sulfur in it or enough phosphorus in it based on conventional agronomy, but yet the plant is showing deficiencies, right? And 
why are those deficiencies there? Well, the microbial community are the ones that are influencing, they're the gatekeepers and they're moving those nutrients. So now we're using this test to kind of build on top of things like the Haney test. Uh, the third leg of this is, is plant tissue analysis and or sap analysis. Uh, so it's kind of, you know, what's your potential in the soil? Are we actually transporting it? You know, think of that, like that's your infrastructure, the microbes transportation, and then your factory that's receiving those goods is your plant. And we wanna make sure that they actually get shipped, transported and delivered, right? Um, and so we're trying to tie those things together. And, and I think when it comes to efficiency, you know, nutrient use efficiency is one part for the farmer, uh, but on top of that, you've got to have the building materials to get nutrient dense food. And at the end of the day, that's what the, the consumers are wanting to buy. And yeah. so we're trying to bridge that gap. Yeah, that, uh, wow. You, you covered a lot of ground there in about two minutes. Um, uh, go back to this, this uh, met metagenomics real quick. Um, so this is all strictly, uh, within that soil profile, you can do that. You take, you go out and, and do the procedures you need to do to pull that soil sample, send them to your lab, regen lab. You can do this as a, as another test run on that, that a la carte list that you have of tests that you can do. Yes. So as it sits right now, we're actually receiving the samples at the laboratory. We're processing those samples. We're actually submitting those out to biomakers. So biomakers has a lab. We're working in partnership with them. Um, we're handling all of that for the client. You don't have to pull separate samples. We're able to run Haney test and PLFA or biomakers test or whatever on the same sample. Okay. We handle all the internal reporting and billing, but the goal before the end of this year uh, Rick is to actually bring that equipment in place at Regen Ag Lab, be able to increase throughput, turnaround time, et cetera, on those analyses. Um, but as it sits right now today, we're outsourcing those directly to biomakers. Yeah. Uh, real quick, Lance, give us your uh, give us your web page there, please, so the folks can jot this down. Uh, yeah, the website is regenaglab.com, R-E-G-E-N. AGLAB.com. Yeah, that's great. This is this is where we're headed. I am so convinced, guys, and I think I think you're on board with me here. We are going to uh, sit down, answer ten or twelve questions about you know history of the field, what are pest issues you have, what are weed issues you have, and we're going to build cocktails that will then turn on certain certain parts of this microbial biome to then attack attack those problems you have that that's I think we're already doing it now but those are going to be prescriptions that are coming down the road that are going to be extremely useful um, now Russell you are a longtime proponent of the Haney test you're probably one of the one of the loudest voices that that promotes that test um, why did you get started with it and what what have you seen from day one to now now that you've done this i don't know probably nine or ten years now what are you seeing so i mean as far as being a proponent for the test uh, even though i believed in regenerative agriculture and the practices we were doing it took us four years to get this over the whole farm um i first ran my first haney test in 2013 and in 2017 was the first year that we, we hit all 100% of our acres. 
And, now, you know, hey, the- Russell, hang on just a yep. second. What's your, you, you, you know, what this people are going to say, oh, wait a minute, I can't do this on, on, on thousand acres. It's going to be too expensive. So what's your, what, how do you do in your, your sampling? What's your grid? Um, I mean, 2013 and 2014, we didn't pay for the Haney test because they ran it at the ARS lab. Okay. Um, and that's, that's when we were sending it to Rick. Um, and, and now it's, it's not grids. We'd look at zones. Um, if I've got a 40 acre field and 30 acres of it are one soil type and 10 acres is another slope or elevation or soil type, then we'll do the two zones. Um, and, and even, even at the 10 acre mark, we're, Yes, we're spending $5 an acre at that point, but um, I mean, just to give you a quick rundown, um, the 48 acre farm that we just pulled in February for our nutrient management schools that we're doing here in North Carolina, the zero to six showed 61 pounds and the six to 12 was right at 68 pounds. So that's almost 130 pounds of nitrogen per acre times 48 times after the after the run-up last week, I think we're at a dollar and forty cents a pound for nitrogen. So you're talking well close to two hundred dollars an acre in nitrogen savings. And I spent maybe four to five bucks an acre for that. So spend five, make two hundred. I mean, that's, that's pretty easy ROI. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. So okay, now let's 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 stay right here for just a moment. So have you? Have you been doing this with legume packages or are you just doing this with massive diversity crop rotation and trying to just roll this system out? Or is it a kind of a combination of, of, of all of the above? As far as where we're doing the Haney test? No, to get to those kind of nitrogen numbers, just let's go talk about nitrogen just for a moment. So are you doing, you know, these diverse cocktails through crop rotation or you have you got legume packages what what what's help us out with what your mix is it's it's a compound effect so when we first started we were at one and a half percent organic matter we were doing um maybe 50 50 mixes on our cover crops and and we were seeing that 20 30 maybe 40 pounds an acre that we were picking up on the haney test um, the field I just told you about, to give you an idea, from 2012, we were at 1.8 to 1.9% organic matter on several fields on that farm. The tests we just pulled this February were 7.5 to 7.8% organic matter. And so it's, it's a compounding effect of we are always having higher amounts of organic material that then feeds the microbial pool. And so our CO2 burst back in 2012 would have been 70s and 80s, and now we're hitting 450 to 550 on that burst. So we we have a big bigger microbial pool, and we have a bigger food source. So it it over time those numbers continually to creep up. Yeah, yeah, but you you know you're, you're doing diverse cocktails. Uh, you know when you've got that opportunity. 12, 14, 15 species at a time, those types of things, correct? Yeah, our, our, I would say our most diverse mix is about nine to 11 species and, and are on the low side five. So anywhere from five to 11. Right. Okay. Now tell us a little bit about your climate there. Do you, do you freeze there? And if so, how long of a period is it? Um, it depends on the year. Uh, most years we'll have maybe two weeks below okay. 30s, the end of the 20s, 15s. 
Um, this year's been pretty cold. We've had some good snowfall amounts, maybe a foot or two, which is kind of one out of 10 years. Yeah. Um, but 40, 45 inches of precip. And um, the, the bad part for us is while we are more mild in the wintertime, the summertime heat easily hits temperatures above 100. And we've had, you know, heat indexes of 120, 125 degrees during the season. Okay, so now this lends me into another question now. With that, with that time, and let's call that, let's assume that you're not going to get to those freezing points that, that might terminate some cover crops that I would use in West Central Indiana. How do you deal with those species then that I would expect to winter kill, but you, you do not? So are you, how are you ter terminating those? How far do you let them go to maturity? Talk a little bit about that because see, we're getting into this, this context thing, which is so critical of, of the, the six principles of soil health. The context is very important here. Um, you're probably south of me. You gotta be south. I'm, I'm in line with about Philadelphia to the East coast. Oh, then I'm, I'm easily six, seven hours below you. Con yeah. That's a huge I'm, difference. Yeah. I'm, I'm zone seven B. Um, okay. And so uh, radishes will die here probably four out of five years. So we went away from radishes and we went to a pound of rape, uh, still good taproot, good lateral roots, good sulfur nitrogen pickup. Um, oats will only probably die here one out of 10 years. Okay. Um, so, you know, oats, oats survive down here pretty well. And, and we've seen some pretty good biological indicators from planting oats. Um, especially on, on the fungi side. So we, we put oats in every single one of our mixes. Um, and I mean, I, I understand up north, if you plant wheat too early and get it too tall, it'll die. Down here, we might get a, you know, a browning tip for maybe an inch or two, but it always grows out of it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it really doesn't limit us on the number of species we can use. And we, we try to capture that through diversity. Um, and one of the things we picked up from uh, David Brandt is we always try to put one new species every year. And if that means taking one species out to put a new species in, it's always throwing a different exudate there in that soil profile and, and trying to mix it up where we're not doing the same continuous cover crop year after year after year. That, that is an awesome idea because, again, it goes back to what Lance and I talked about earlier. We don't know the majority of those microbes that are below us. So we got to give them every chance we can to succeed down there. And, you know, I think part of what, what happens here when you talk about these ground pounders, and I've got a, I've got a question here for you, Lance, in just a moment. But, you know, when, when we think about these ground pounders, guys, and all of these microbes have, have, have gone to sleep because they don't have a job to do, and we now then roll into this regenerative type of farming, and we've got to figure out how to wake some of these microbes back up and get this system rolling again. So it, there's just so, it's just such a complex system that it, it's awfully hard to, to have all of the answers. No, nobody has all the answers, but, but we sure try. Um, I got a question, Lance, from Julie Dahl. Hi, Julie, how you doing tonight? Uh, thanks for this great info. Once a farmer would get results of the PFLA, how would that information management or how would that inform management specifically what would a farmer change in management based on those results 
Yeah, that's a great question, Julie. Um, so I will mention this. We use PLFA as more of a report card style test versus a prescription style test. Uh, what I mean by that is that a lot of the soil tests that maybe you're more familiar with is that, you know, they come back with a set prescription saying, add this, add this, do this, you know, et cetera. Um, PLFA is more about understanding where your microbial community is, and we look for certain indicators. So one of those indicators, for example, is the fungal to bacterial ratio. So we hear a lot about this and how important fungi are when it comes to soil structure and carbon sequestration, nutrient transport, et cetera, et cetera. So we can look at things like that on the PLFA test, and we can provide you suggestions when it comes to management. But those suggestions are usually large concept ideas. So for example, reducing disturbance, right? Now you can do that anyway, but it's usually combining those things where it's, you know, adjusting your carbon input into the system, which may cause a difference in rotation, crash crop rotation, or cover crop species being selected. Couple that with reduced um, disturbance through tillage or possibly reduced fungicide application. And then what we do is we reevaluate. And then the question is, well, how often do we reevaluate? That has to do with your intensity of management. If you're going to make two or three relatively large changes, we'll want to reevaluate maybe on an annual basis. If you're going to just try something, um, one thing, and, and maybe do it every other year, we might be looking at reevaluating in three to four years. So the goal is not to have you pulling PLFA tests every two weeks, right, to monitor this. We, we're using it as a report card to give you feedback on those management changes. Great question, Julie. Thank you. And Lance, that was a tremendous answer. Thank you. Um, got a question here. Uh, uh, Joe, I, I hope I don't botch your last name, or John, John Brandstrader. When is the best time of the year to pull samples for the Haney test? And I want to hear this answer from both gentlemen. Uh, Russell, go ahead and start. Actually, all three of us are going to answer this. Russell, go right ahead. I say it depends on what your uh, what your goal is, what your information you want from the test. Um, if I know I have a farm that's deficient in phosphorus or potassium, one of the ones that we're truly trying to to build, if we know biological activity is low, um, and we're trying to make a a really good cover crop recommendation, I'll pull it in the fall before harvest. So. I can look at what the soil uh, carbon to nitrogen ratio is, where my respiration rates are. Do I need more legumes or grasses? Um, do I want to go ahead and fall apply any nutrients? Because I know that the, the nutrient breakdown in that soil solution is going to be low. So if I apply it in the spring, it may not be there for the following crop. If I'm going for nitrogen recommendations, um, I'm going to pull it when we start seeing that spring warm up. So for here, when wheat's coming out of dormancy, which is about third week of February going into the first week of March, I can pull my samples then, get a good indicator where my nitrogen is, where my biological activity is in that soil, in that soil profile and, and make my spring, my spring nitrogen recommendations based off of that. Um, and the only time I've done it outside of that was we had a drought, a D4 drought in 2015 and our residue was not breaking down. Um, we knew we were not getting that nutrient release, so we pulled one mid-season for top dress nitrogen. Yeah, see, those are all things we used to do a long time ago, except we didn't, we didn't use the Haney test for that. We were pulling nitrate cores at one foot and two foot, and then trying to decide 
you know, okay, pull them at, at, at one foot at V5 and then two feet at V8, and do we really need to side dress? And if we are, what amount are we going to use? So we've always had that, that mindset of only trying to put on the amount of nitrogen that we really need for that crop. So it, all that makes a difference. Um, so Lance, what, what do you think about when, and, and Russell, by the way, that was great, great answer. Thank you. Lance, what do you think? Um, well, I'm going to echo really quick what Russell said. Number one, you got to have a goal in mind. Uh, so there's three main ways that I generally recommend using the Haney test. One of those is for, uh, for fertility management. One of those is for, for cover crop suggestion, uh, you know, looking at the soil properties like Russell mentioned. And then one of those is just overall soil health indicator. And so, of course, if you're using it for nutrient management, it needs to coincide of when you're going to apply. If you're doing a spring application, um, I'm, I'm recommending either two weeks before you apply. That gives the lab plenty of time to get results back. In normal years, I'm not going to promise anybody this year, <laughs> that gives you enough time to source what you need to source and get it applied at the time you want it applied, yeah. um, especially after you, you've got a cover crop there. Um, if you're doing fall application, then that works fine as well. We even do have some people using this in season uh, for pre-side dress uh, nitrogen. Um, but if you're going to do just soil health, if you want to know the ideal time for just soil health, it's usually late spring or early fall. And what I mean by that is before the crop reaches maturity, but after the crop's established, stick away from the, the extremes. Regardless of that answer, though, Rick, the most important thing is consistency. So if you decide that you're going to sample uh, don't pull a sample in February and then pull one in October the, the following year, unless your answer that you're, or the question you're trying to answer is how different is my soil biology between February and October, right. uh, not from year one to year two, because that, right. that creates variability in there. Yeah, it's great. Now, what I've decided to do here, everything's geospatially marked. So we're always going back to the same location. We're covering some large acres here. So what we've tried to do is regionalize those acres in, into 500 block areas. We then go out and pick a field that we think would be the representative sample of that 500. And then we're gonna take three spots in that field of the history, the worst producing area, the best producing area, and the average producing area. And we're gonna pull samples three times a year, spring, summer, and fall. I do this now. I know this gets pricey, but I do this because I want to know exactly what both you guys just said. I don't know when the best time really is. So I'm going to try to catch all of those phases of that cover crop growing, the termination of the cover crop. Uh, you know, what are the microbes doing? And, and then I think another thing that's very important here, and this is, again, my thought process. I want to hear what you guys think. I try not to look at that test result as a snapshot in time. I'm trying to look at the history of taking these and what's the trend. Where are we trending? Is organic matter trending up or down? Is, is nitrogen trending up or down? So that's, that's how I kind of try to dissect through uh, these tests. What do you guys think? Lance, what do you think? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, look, there's a lot of ways to accomplish your goals, uh, you know, with, and, and you obviously your goals may be a little different than other people, right? So you're trying to establish all those things you mentioned um, during cover crop, following termination, in season, etc. 
Um, the one thing I will mention, you, you kind of triggered this in me when you said, you know, you're watching some numbers go up or down and looking at trends and keep in mind that a lot of these things are an intricate dance, right? So we talk about respiration on the Haney test representing microbial activity and biomass. Well, when they're active, they're consuming carbon. So if your respiration goes up, your carbon tends to go down over time. Now on the water extract, you know, and nitrogen is tied to carbon. So organic nitrogen is tied to carbon. So your nit organic end will go down with carbon. Um, your nitrate and ammonium will go up. But then as plants are growing, they take up nitrate and ammonium and that causes them to go back down. So you can see this dance back and forth. And this is what always drove me crazy when people say, well, we have to balance all these things. We have to balance this or balance that. And I'm going, no, Mother Nature does that. If we just yeah. stay out of the way, she, she does that. So yeah. um, just keep that in mind, because one of the questions I often get is I noticed some of these numbers went up. And that's good. And some of these other numbers went down and that's bad. Well, you got to look at it as a whole picture. Yeah. It's not just the individual numbers. One goes up, one goes down. So um, it's important to understand those trends because you understand those relationships. Right. But uh, but it's still taking the whole picture. All right. Hang on just a second, Russell. Hang on. All right. So now, Lance. Do you have on your form there that we're filling out that we're going to send this sample to you? Are you what, what periphery type questions are you asking? Are you asking what is there a cover crop plant and what's the growth stage? How was it termed? I mean, is that part of the the because see what you just said is what happens if you go out five days different than what you just described, you're going to get tremendously different results here. So do you, are you trying to find out as much information as you can from that farmer or that agronomist who's pulling that sample? As it sits right now, the answer is no. Um, now, the reason for that is, is because that is a giant, okay, two oh. reasons. The giant database for us to try to manage and tie together. Number two, um, I, I, I know what it's like when you're out in the field pulling soil samples and, uh, we're, we're often lucky if people just fill out a sheet of paper. You'd be surprised how many times we get a box of soils in the mail with nothing written on it. We just or a napkin. Yeah, right. So, um, but, but here's, here's the, the, the future answer to that. So uh, Dr. Rick Haney and I are working on building out the interpretation for this. Uh, we currently have uh, like a nine page, you know, kind of interpretation that it's pretty in depth. It goes through, it's, it's, it's more educational than interpretation. It's, we're trying to educate the, cons the, the producers to be able to interpret their own results 90% and then be able to reach out with those questions. Yeah. But with that being said, we are in the process, uh, just starting, but the process of designing basically exactly that a software platform that the data will go into it doesn't mean you can't use your current systems, but what it is, is it's just to collect that information on your time. So you can sit down, fill out that information. What are you planting? What cover crops you're using? Do you integrate livestock, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And then when we tie the data back to that, the interpretation is built on a combination of the soil results and the management, you know, the management practices being used. And it's basically right. a lot this of is huge. It's back and forth. That, that will give you an interpretation surrounding that. See, th this is huge because you're, you're trying 
to to make not foolproof is probably not the right word to use here, but you're really trying to narrow down all of the outliers. How about we go that route? Uh, because I've seen it. We'll pull tests and I'll, I'll get the results back. I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's go pull those again. That's 10 days later. And you've got a whole different set of numbers. So it ne we need to be able to understand why we get those eb ebbs and flows. So thank you for, for explaining that. Uh, Russell, let, let, you know, again, the, these, these tests are so important. So how, how are you looking at them? Uh, from that standpoint of what I mentioned of a snapshot in time versus trends, what do you think? I, I think the data you get from a soil test is only as good as you can interpret it. Um, I, I think so many times farmers get hung up that if you pull a traditional test, then it it's the silver bullet for the whole season and tells you a breakdown. And I think a lot of farmers don't understand that a conventional test will change just as much as the Haney test will from day to day. Um, I do like your approach that you're pulling it at multiple times of the season. So if you do hit drought or a wet season, <clears throat> if you're getting some kind of an adverse uh, effect in that crop, you're going to catch it. Um, and, and I'm sure you're kind of like what we are now, Rick, that, we don't have to pull as many tests because we've, we've learned those visual indicators. Yeah. And, and I think as farmers continue to go down this path that yeah, it's an upfront cost, but eventually you get to the point where you don't have to pull as many tests. You can actually go to your, your field and, and make those management decisions based off your eyes. Yeah. That's a great point. That's a great point. And um, Rick, if you don't mind, I'd, I'm just going to add to that. Yeah, our, our goal here is to help you get to a point where you trust your own system and then and, and it's working for you. And the, the goal is to eventually uh, have you as a really wonderful client and then a really good friend. And then we just talk when we see each other at conferences because, yeah, it's, the goal is not to get you on the hook for, for soil yeah. tests for what you like. But on top of that, I'd add in the dimension on the variability Yes, we know these test results are variable and it, it just like every soil test, um, but Rick built in conservancies, you know, Rick Haney built in conservancies on these tests. So when we're building recommendations from this, from a fertility standpoint, you know, we're capping these things off at certain levels, whatever we measure at the time. So what that means is, is that in reality, you have a really good weather year or conditions are right you're probably going to get more nutrient cycling than what we actually gave you credit for. Um, if you end up in a terrible drought situation, well, you're still ahead of the game because you saved nutrients on the front, you know, didn't spend. So just wanted to add that really quick in there that we know the variable. We try to build in a lot of those conservancies with that as well. Yeah. And that's a great point. Um, now, on this test also, there's a there's a box there at the end somewhere that gives you a soil health score. <clears throat> now I wanna I wanna talk about, you know, everyone wants to talk about carbon markets and we've gotta play ball and we gotta do this. But you know what, Russell, you and I aren't gonna be able to play ball because the way they're trying to write the rules, you need to create change on your farm. Well, you and I can't there's not a whole lot left we can change. So I want to talk about what, Lance, what do you think would be a way to attack the carbon market that is going to be fair for the farmer, all farmers, 
and fair for the buyers. What, what do you, and I don't want to go, we can go as deep as you want here. I just want your thoughts on, on what you think. Yeah, that's a loaded question. Yeah. Don't, don't say that. Uh, um, well, oh boy, where do I start? Okay. I will start off by saying that I think that there's a giant misconception by most, um, not all, I'm not going to lump them all together, but there's a giant misconception by most of these groups that treat a number one, they're treating carbon as a commodity. So if you, if for all you farmers out there that complain about commodity prices and, you know, high input costs, just keep in mind, they're turning carbon into a commodity. We've seen this before. Um, but number two, it's, it's linear. They think it's linear and we're going to take it out of the atmosphere and put it in the ground and lock it up forever. Right. That, that's the idea they've got. And I mean, so much so that there's companies out there literally trying to pump CO2 out of the atmosphere with mechanics and drive it into the ground and lock it up. Right. Yeah. yeah. So the problem is, is that carbon and I know Keith Burns has talked about this. He's got a wonderful talk uh, on carbonomics, but carbon is the currency of all life on this planet, with the exception of a few microbes and deep sea thermal vents. Carbon drives all of us, plants included. I often ask people, what is the number one nutrient requirement of a plant, of a corn plant? Everyone says nitrogen. No, it's carbon, followed by hydrogen, followed by oxygen, followed by nitrogen. Carbon is number one. So it drives all life on this planet and it has to cycle. If it doesn't cycle, we're in trouble. We're all dead. So all these carbon companies that want to pay people for building carbon in the soil and locking it there and paying you just based on the investments that you gain every year is a very, very dangerous concept, in my opinion. Yeah. I think that we need to figure out, and we have, and I'm not going to spend all the time going into that, but Rick Haney has been working on a, a calculation or algorithm based on the metrics of the Haney test, the three phases of carbon solid, which is what we call organic matter or soil organic carbon, liquid, which is the photosynthetic part. That's the, the liquid sugars in the plant, the plant root exudates, the water soluble extractable carbon we're measuring on the Haney test. And then the gas phase, which is the capture of carbon from the atmosphere, in addition to the respiration of carbon out of the soil by the microbes. That's the cycle part. And you have to spend money to make money. And there's two ways that you can capture carbon increase your carbon income or decrease your spending. Well, guess what? Coupling cover crops with no-till does both. Reducing synthetic nitrogen with no-till and cover crops does both. You're increasing the carbon income, you're increasing the, they're decreasing the carbon spending. The actual cycling of it through the bio, the microbiome, that is the workers doing the job. And when they do their work, they're able to save some of that. And that is what we're measuring. That's what carbon markets are measuring. So we want to incorporate this whole process. And you get paid for what you build. That's great. But we want to get carbon companies to adopt what your potential is. Your potential, Rick, Russell's potential might be higher than somebody who starts with lower stable carbon, but your potential through your biological capacity is greater. You are cycling more. You have a stronger economy. Lance, that sounds really dynamic. Oh, is that what that is? Is that, I think it is. Uh, that, that, that's a word. Yeah. Dynamic is the word. Maybe it's dynamic. 
That's dynamic yeah. carbon. Well, Lance, thank, thank you. Thank you because you have just incorporated my it's thinking it's process with your thinking process. And it's exactly where I think we need to be. And this test has already got the basis for that with the health score. And we can, we can keep, I don't, you know, somebody come up with what does 12 on a, on a health score equate to just, I don't care. Come up with a, a grid that works and it's fair for everybody. Now, Russell, what do you have to say about this? Um, I think that I've been very involved in the talks and structuring of a lot of the carbon programs that farmers are using right now. Um, the more I'm educated as a farmer about these carbon programs, um, I'm kind of disappointed. Um, you know, to have a company that's, that's probably one of the number one verifiers right now in world carbon that is using a 30 year old system that was, that model was built off of agroforestry. Um, I don't farm in a forest. I see something different every three months or less, whether it be our production change, intercropping, companion cropping, double cropping, livestock integration. You know, I don't farm a forest. So I think that those models don't work. And we've, we've had companies come to the farm before and actually test our soil's carbon levels. And they were anywhere from like three to six tons higher than what their model showed. So then I'm getting the shaft on getting the payment for the carbon. And so that's why we haven't signed up yet. Right. Um, right. And I think there are. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go right ahead. I, I, I think there are some programs that are going off of testing, but they're still using the wrong test. Um, the TOC, in my opinion, is not the best one for carbon. And um, I, I think working with people like Lance and Liz and Rick really have, I've been fortunate enough to learn that there's better ways to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, the people aren't deaf to this concept. I, I think we just have to better make them understand. I mean, what you just went through Lance is pretty in depth there. You went quickly, but there's a lot to that. I mean, it, it I think it goes back to that education part. We've got to get the, the correct people, uh, informed of what you guys just talked about. Yeah, it's it's difficult because a lot of, you know, a lot of people think of, of microbes in the soil, they eat carbon and then they that carbon is leaving the soil as carbon dioxide. So right. it seems counterintuitive where you would say, well, why do I want all of these microbes? You know, why do I want this residue to disappear? Why do I want carbon dioxide leaving the system? And it's saying, but again, it's the exact same reason why you want people to go spend money at grocery stores and restaurants and, you know, outlets and go to movies. It's because that's what drives an economy. And so, it, you know, it's it really about having that is that you've got to be able to have them do this. And beyond carbon, you know, beyond carbon, the reason we want this to happen, you know, even beyond nutrient cycling, the reason we want this to happen is because, one of the biggest problems, uh, I fully believe that we as a, as a species will not kill each other over food before we kill each other over water. Hmm. We, we will fight over water way before we fight over food. So microbes build soil structure. They build structure through plant roots and through carbon. And if we don't feed that system, they will 
break down and rebuild aggregates every three weeks. So we need to have carbon going into this system. And yes, the microbes are going to respire carbon, but in the process, they're doing work. They're building all this structure, increase water infiltration, all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's just, you know, it's way over my head, but it's fascinating. There's just so many, you know, uh, symbiotic relationships. We know what some of them are, but there's so many we don't understand. It's, it's just, it's just, it's, it's a great time to be in agriculture right now, or a great time to be in, in the biology business. I, I always, you know, I love working with FFA kids. Uh, they'll ask me, what should I go to school for? I will throw out, if it was me going back to college, I would get a, a, a master or a, a major in biology and probably a minor in ecology. I think that would be a great co uh, combo to be a farmer today because that's what this is all about is biology. How to understand what the cause and effect is or what are those unintended consequences because they happen all the time. Um, Russell got a question here. Tim, uh, this is from Tim. Does Russell incorporate grazing of livestock in his system or is the organic matter increasing primarily from the, the cover crops and his practices? It's, it's a mixture of both. Um, you know, when we have so many different landlords, um, we're farming in systems where we're close to cities or streets. Some landlords absolutely will not let us have any livestock because they think it's a liability. Um, we have had farms that we've integrated some livestock grazing on, but it's, it's very minimal. Um, I would say our organic matter increases are predominantly from changing up our days of rotation. Um, instead of using like 120 day corn, like our neighbors would, we've backed down to 105 to 115, depending on, you know, our expected harvest time as we move from field to field. And that, that gives us, you know, usually a one to three week window of getting covers in faster in the fall, which helps us with, with building that biomass. Um, and then we've done the same thing with beans instead of planting, you know, mid fives to maybe a late six, we're planting like a four, eight to normally like a five, one, five, two. And, and that also allows us to get beans off, you know, the end of October instead of, you know, Thanksgiving to Christmas time. Um, so that's really, really helped out a lot. You know, it, you have to become creative on, I mean, you just don't realize how important the timing of planting these cover crops is until you get as deep as we are and see how these, these Haney test numbers can change just based on the amount of biomass that, that is being produced in a year's time. It's unbelievable the amount of change. Um, got a, got a question here from uh, Mitchell. I assume it's Mitchell Hora. How you doing, Mitchell? I was told today that the USDA Soil Health Measurements Group isn't for the Haney test or even the 24-hour burst analysis for carbon testing, grant deployment, or soil health indication at large. How do we get the uh, academics to understand what the farmers need and what is working to help us all pay our bills? Great question, Mitchell. Who won? Oh, Lance is going. Here we go. Please, let me have that one. I can't. I can't speak on that on this podcast. Oh, buddy, I I'm gonna get in trouble, Rick. It's okay. Uh, no, you know what? I, I'm just gonna come right out and say it. I was part of the Soil Renaissance Group. The Soil Renaissance Group turned into the Soil Health Institute. 
If you're not paying attention, the Soil Health Institute is essentially the exact mirror image of the NRCS there. The people who were the head of the NRCS Soil Health Division are the exact same people who are in the Institute. Here's the difference. One group has to play with public money. The other group's playing with private money. Turns out it's all the same group. So imagine this, a bunch of guys, a bunch of farmers, a bunch of women, we go down to this conference and they listen to Rick speak for about 10 minutes. They run him out of the room. They alienate every farmer in the room. And the only industry sitting in the room is three laboratories and everybody else is an academic either coming from the USDA or some university. It's no surprise that the uh, NRCS is now backing the same tests that were endorsed by the Soil Health Institute considering it's the exact same person playing with private money endorsing tests versus non-private money endorsing tests. So here's the interesting part. If you want to follow the NRCS Soil Health Technical Note, if you want to run all of those tests, I offer every one of them. You're going to pay $280 to $300 a sample. You are going to receive seven different reports, and you're going to go to your NRCS agent and ask them how to interpret any of this. And it's no offense to the field NRCS agents. It's not their fault. They're going to look at you and say, I have no idea. You're going to call me and I'm going to say, well, I can interpret three of them. The rest of them, you can call the scientists that came up with them. And they're going to tell you that there's no reason to run those tests. Interesting. So I've had four states call me and they said, we're not following the federal NRCS technical note because it's worthless. Why is it worthless? Our farmers will not sign up for these enhancement programs and we are going to run what they feel is useful. Turns out what they feel is useful is the Haney test. On top of that, if you actually look through the technical note, you'll notice that for soil respiration, there are two options, a four-day and a 24-hour. There's also an option for carbon. One of those options for carbon is water-soluble organic carbon. One of the options for nitrogen is water-soluble organic nitrogen. Uh, all the components of the Haney test are actually there. They just broke them apart into separate pieces because they don't want to use the term Haney. Yeah. That's a political thing. Can I? Can I? Yeah. Okay. I'm done. Go ahead. Rob. Okay. Hey, so here's. Hey. Yeah. Oh, come on. Go let, ahead, let, let me own it. Go ahead. Go ahead. So. Back in 2017, I got invited to speak in Washington, D.C. for the first time. Somebody who was over the Soil Health Division for NRCS spoke about a certain test that I will not name and how great it was. And it was the latest and greatest thing and how the NRCS was funding it. And then I got up there and spoke about the Haney test as as it applied to my actual farm. They interrupted me twice during my presentation. And the thing that really made me the maddest is to find out that the head of the soil health division at that time pulled the money from the Haney test, sent it to another lab in which her husband ran that lab. Uh, that is a major conflict of interest. And that is the yeah. test that they pushed. And the other conflict of interest is, is the reason that one organization said that the new soil health test was right is because the other agency backed it, but they were the same people. Like they were saying as this entity that that test was right and then use the other entity to say, well, we're saying it's right because they also agree it's right, yeah. but it's the same people. Yeah, that seems just- Well, we're gonna make some people on this one. Yeah, let the hate mail start, I guess. Yeah, well, 
you know, I, I appreciate your, your candor here, guys, because this is important stuff, though. I mean, it, it's somebody's got to got to say these things. And Mitchell, thank you for the great question. Now, now, guys, this is from Matt. Now, this is probably going to be a little similar, but I'll, I'll go ahead and read you. Can you comment on the NRCS 216 soil testing standards? I signed up for the Equip 216 program only to find out now that 216 doesn't give give me fertility. I've discussed this slightly with Lance. So what do you think, Lance? Uh, sorry, who was that question from? Rick? It just says Matt. Okay. Um, yeah, so, oh, God bless the government. Um, the NRCS came up with a couple of sub, you know, subgroups for this whole soil health thing, and 216 is one of them. Um, it's incredibly confusing. Again, the 216, I believe, and don't quote me because I kind of just stopped paying attention to some of those mm -hmm. things. Sure. Um, but I believe the 216 is a subset of the overall test methods. This is where they finally came out and said, okay, you've got all these options, but we're going to tell you which option you have to run. So now you no longer have, you have options, but you don't have options, right? Um, the issue there is that you're right. There is very limited fertility in there. And I think you have the option to add a fertility measurement to the 216 and it's a conventional soil test. So going back to, you know, malic 3, ammonium acetate, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. um, and you're allowed or, or encouraged, I think, to, to add that into the program if, and I think they say something like, if you haven't run these tests or a similar test in the last two years or something like that. Um, but again, the problem with the 216 is that if you go through and, and add up the price for ACE protein and pox and water holding capacity and ag stability, whatever's in there, I mean, it's not cheap. Um, and I'm sorry, it's not, um, I, you know, I, I can't be a USA funded lab where I could run Haney tests for free or any test for free. Right. I've got employees and equipment. Um, but we're trying to do the best we can. And, and there's a lot of tests out there. I just refuse to run, uh, simply because if we can't interpret them and I don't feel there's value added, we're not going to do it. Um, now I see there's a continuation of that question, Rick. So go ahead. Something about organic carbon content. Uh, do you see it there? Do you see it, Lance? I just saw it pop up really quickly and then. Um, let's see. Okay. Soil organic carbon content measured by dry combustion, wet macro aggregate stability measured using ARS or NRCS methods or by sprinkle uh, infiltrometer. Yep. Respiration using a four-day, you've already talked about a lot of this, active carbon measured by uh, permanganate oxidation, bioavailable nitrogen measured as citrate extractable protein. Yep. So, so the last one there is the ACE protein test. The one before that is the POX, that's a potassium permanganate oxidizable carbon. Yep. Um, and then you've got the four-day incubation uh, versus a one-day uh, I believe Dr. Haney, Dr. Haney's been researching that for years. I mean, look, do you capture all the CO2 in 24 hours? No, you capture about 95% of it. So what's the biggest concept or the biggest problem with, with laboratory um, analysis? 
what's everybody want? Turnaround time, cheap, accurate. And usually in that order, by the way. Uh, yeah. After 20 years of doing this, that's usually what people are concerned with. Doing a four-day test, you receive samples on a Tuesday. You're not setting them up until Wednesday or, or actually Thursday because I can't convince everybody to come in and work Saturdays and Sundays. You know, it just just so you can get the extra 5%. Well, that's fine, but the difference between research and real world life is that research wants to be as precise and as, as precise as possible, as close to the true number as possible for accuracy, and they want it to be repeatable. In the real world, I've had people argue this with me, we can run the same soil sample, get 3.4, parts per million nitrate, we rerun it, we get 3.8. And they call me and say, how come that didn't repeat? And I said, okay, you've got seven pounds and you've got 7.5 pounds of credit. Go ahead and adjust your spray or your spreader to calibrate for the extra half pound of difference. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. There's tolerances within this. So my point is, is that some of these methods may, I will not argue, they're not more accurate, they're not better but they're expensive because they're more accurate. And at the end of the day, those extra dollars that you're spending to get that analysis don't mean anything when it comes to your management across 7,000 acres. Yeah. Yeah. Great. This is great guys. This is just, this is awesome. I mean, I mean, we have to also understand that we're not going to reach everybody where it's just not going to happen. So make this stuff work for what we've got. Now, Julia Gerlach, hey, Julia, how you doing? Um, she had a question about the comment I made earlier where I think, I think we're going to get to the point, and I think we're already doing it, where we're going to have prescriptions of cover crops to, to manage certain situations. Russell, what, am I just crazy? Am I this wacky guy from Indiana? What do you think? No, but I think it'll be within reason. Um, you know, one of the things that I've heard, you know, say David Brandt talk about, he planted all legumes like he did clover, he did veg, he did winter peas, solid seeded all of them. He sent a test in and Rick Haney, you know, called him on the phone. He's like, hey, you've got 750 pounds of nitrogen to the acre and told him good luck. And Dave yeah. kind of chuckled. And then when he went to go plant, the ground was so hard because there was such a nitrogen overload. All the biology consumed the carbon and it became a brick. Um, I think that we definitely are seeing farmers go more prescribed cover crops um, instead of buying base blends or, um, you know, point in case when I started doing this um, and Lee helped me set up our cover crop mixes, I think we were at like 40 pounds per acre. And, you know, 10 years into this now, if we planted that same 40 pounds per acre, I'm going to run out of residue by June. Yeah. And so, you know, we always have to make modifications to either increase small grains or if we're going to corn, we increase um, our legumes within reason and also put in a little bit of, of brassica in there to balance carbon to nitrogen ratio. So yeah. um, right. I, I think it definitely changes based on um, a, a lot of factors. And I think as farmers, you know, go into the system, it does take time, probably three to five years before they really get a hold of what they're doing. Yeah, and you make a very good point there, Russell. I mean, even though um, Dave may have planted five or six different legumes, he was still in a monoculture there, and that just is not good for soil biology. We know that. So we've, you know, if he would have uh, 
I probably added the grass to that at the minimum. It would have probably changed the whole ball game. Now, you know, as you guys know, I like to plant no-till corn into alfalfa that's a couple years old. The same thing happens there. So when we know we're bringing that alfalfa out in the fall, we will plant 30, 40, 50 pounds of cereal rye in with that alfalfa to help with that cycling of what you're talking about, Russell. Um, Russell, got a question here. We're going to get to your, I think this is very important. I like to use the word closing the loop. And Russell, you are absolutely closing the loop. When you take the, 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 the seed that you're planting and you are either making a flower out of that seed or you're making a bourbon out of that seed or whatever the case may be, and then you turn and sell that to the retail, that now is total transparency. You've closed the loop. There's no question about everything that happened. Please talk about why you're deciding to do this and, and how far are you going to take this vertical integration? I mean, we've been working on vertical integration since I would say 2014. Um, the, the one thing I'll say is that is probably the hardest part of farming is the consumer education, the time and management of having the time to deal with the questions of I, I put a hog for sale on Facebook and had a lady email me and she said she wanted to get a whole hog made into bacon. Um, <laughs> don't we all? Yeah, I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. I love bacon too, but I don't think she understands, you know, it was only the belly that we get the bacon or every pork, you know, every hog slaughtered, we've been made into whole bacon. But it, there's a lot of consumer education. And uh, I'll say this, Rick, like I'm fortunate. I've, I've, I've made great friends like Lance and you and, and Liz, Jimmy, Lauren, um, we've all kind of came together in the last, I'd say maybe eight, nine months and, and this community effort to one build region mills, which is a mobile mill that will travel around the United States. It runs on single phase power. We can grind grits, cornmeal, corn flour, um, all kinds of gluten-free flours and extracted flours. And we can bag it on the trailer. If it wouldn't have been for that community effort, I don't think I would have done that on my own it's it's um yeah it's been really good and then um looking at the distillery um me and lance have a drinking game with you tonight rick um yep. but coming up with a farmer's reserve distillery and um you know the first bourbon that we're releasing from it is the one that we actually made for rick haney's retirement present i i don't know there's not a lot of things that you can give to somebody but when i heard he was retiring we made the bourbon of legends um, which is the yeah. one named after awesome. Rick for, for his work for farmers. And, um, and then looking at he this. He is a legend. Yeah, he is. I mean, that's what we called him. So we called it the Bourbon of Legends. And then this whole time you've been talking about the carbon markets. And I think everybody has been so focused on what are we going to do with carbon and what are we going to do with this and that. And at the same time, you know, Rick and, and Lance are over here on the backside doing something that, doesn't concern carbon markets, but now we have Regen certified, um, which is a non-biased laboratory test that we can test from zero to six and six to 12 and look at the inherent soil qualities in the six to 12 and look at that main farmer impact zone in the zero to six. And now we can tell in a laboratory test, is the ground regenerative or not? Um, it's not anybody's opinion. It's based on the fact of a test that Rick looks at all these key indicators um, that we have rejuvenated the ground. 
and then um, you know soil region worked really hard on how farmers could uh, capture that market so we came up with regenerative verified which utilizes the test on the front end and then all we do is verify that you're doing regenerative practices and it's not so much for the farmer but it is for the consumer education because if you have a hundred farmers that have a hundred different definitions of what regenerative agriculture is, it's very, it's very confusing for the consumer. And so now having the fact that we can say, Hey, look, we have a test that shows that our ground quality is better, which then drives every other ecosystem that we've discussed tonight, water quality, air quality, grain quality, yep. nutrient density, all of that gets answered in one question. And we have a really awesome label that we're starting to use on products now. And, and, and see, the fact that it's a laboratory test is, is pretty amazing to see that it's coming out during my lifetime. Yeah. I mean, guys, if I was, a, I mean, you're right. We've, we've probably talked too much about carbon, but guys, if I was a municipality that, that had to supply water to the community, I would be greatly concerned about what farming practices are upstream. I mean, what is coming into the water supply? And I don't think we talk about that enough and it all just ties together with everything we've talked about tonight. So it, it's just, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, I've got a question from Michael Thompson. Michael, how you doing? Uh, this is gonna be a toughie, but I think when you think about this, it makes more sense to have what Michael's asking in his environment. In a Western dry land environment, how would you convince a farmer to plant a cover crop because that cover crop uses moisture. What do you think, Russell? I, I think that, uh, you know, we started working. My first time I ever got invited to speak at No-Till on the Plains was back in 15. And all I ever heard every time I went out there was, oh, we're so dry and we can't plant covers. And we partnered with a company called Aquaspy. And we did a cover crop plot and a no cover crop plot, even in North Carolina where we get 40 inches of rainfall. The cover crop used moisture, but we saved so much in pan evaporation that we made up what the cover crop used, plus we had an additional seven to nine inches of moisture. And probably one of the best people that I've heard talk about why fallow doesn't work is Lance Gunderson. And um, I'm, I'm gonna let him tell what he's, I mean, the, the slides that I saw yesterday at our nutrient management school, absolutely, blew my mind of how bad fallow is. Yeah. Yeah. So really, I, I'm going to say this. I, I'm, there was a brilliant man in agriculture that a lot of people probably know, and his name is Dr. Dwayne Beck. Dr. Dwayne Beck up at Pierce, South Dakota, ran the research station up there. Now, Dwayne Beck always used to say that management intensity needs to match environmental intensity. Okay. Now, what he means by that is, don't plant a hardwood forest where a short grass prairie should normally grow, right? Because all you're going to do is you're going to spend a whole lot of time, energy, effort, and money to force this thing to grow where it shouldn't. Now I'm going to relate that back to your cover crop. So I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to pull a real world example here. I had a gentleman call me in 2014. Uh, he called me up and he said, you know what? I, he just started yelling at me on the phone. He says, cover crops will never work. He says, I'm in Western Kansas. I grew a cover crop this year. He says, I don't have any moisture to germinate my wheat. And I said, well, what did you grow? And he said, monoculture sun hemp. 
that was six and a half feet tall. And he said, I don't have any moisture to grow wheat. And he was mad. He was yelling and screaming at me on the phone. And I'm not the one who told him to do it. And I, all I said to him was this. I said, you know what? My orange crop failed in central Nebraska this year too. <laughs> and his reaction was about like that. Now, I wasn't picking on him. What I was trying to do is get him to understand the context of what he was trying to do. Right principle, wrong practice. The management intensity did not meet the environmental intensity. A lot of people think that you got to grow a cover crop seven feet tall. And that's your guys' fault, Rick, Russell. <laughs> no, because you guys, you know, they see these pictures and slides and that's great. But what they don't, a lot of times the, the missing piece is that some of the people that are just starting out, they think in order to be successful, we have to grow a tillage radish and stand there like David Brandt. We have to, you know, grow this this mix and have it be as tall as Russell is. And in reality, that's not true. It's you're building a system. And if you think of building a system like building a fire is that you don't start with whole trees to build a fire. A cover crop annual rye four inches tall will put a root system four feet in the ground. And I don't care if you have one inch of root. If you are the size of a bacteria, how far is that? How big is that? What's your scale? That's, That's from here to the moon. That's from here to the moon, right? So we think of success by growing something seven feet tall. It's no. got to be this. It's got to be that. Look, if you get yourself in those situations, especially in a semi-arid environment, you're setting yourself up for some pretty big disasters. Grow something that's going to be more drought tolerant. Grow, you know, drop your seeding rates by all means. Don't go plant 120 pounds of rye when you're in arid environments, right? Terminate earlier if you need to, but you don't have to do and grow the Sasquatch crops that Russell grows out here so he can hide in them. <laughs> and and, and I, agree. I, I agree with that. And that's one of the things I actually learned from Michael Thompson is, um, from North Carolina to Kansas, you'll cut your seeding rate by at least two thirds. And, and if a seed company sells you a full rate in, in West Kansas, where you get 15 inches of rain, um, it's kind of a shame on them, but at the same time, um, do your research before you do these things. We've, we've made the mistakes and, uh, they're quick. There's a quick learning curve there. And the other so, power with this is, this is the biggest reason why you shouldn't plant a monoculture. What is the number one most competitive crop to a corn plant? What do you think, Rick? Let me ask you a question. What do you think the number one most competitive crop to a corn plant is? Oh, um, maybe another grass. It is another grass. It's corn. The number one competitive crop to corn is corn. Hmm. Because it's the exact same height, same architecture, needs exactly the same amount of sunlight, same nutrients, the same water all at the same time. So we try to plant monocultures thinking we're reducing competition, when in fact, the most highly competitive environment is a monoculture. Right. That's a big yeah, reason plant monos. But the other reason is, is you can plant the same cover crop mix four times on four different years at the same time, and you're going to get four different results. Yeah. Because you can't predict the environment. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it goes back to that, you know, we don't know what exudates they want underground. 
So we have to make that above ground as diverse as possible. So, you know, Dr. Christine Jones from Australia, tremendous woman, tremendous for this industry, she always preached, if you want to grow cover crops in arid, arid environments, you need, you need diversity. They will be the ones that will succeed. And then you'll, like Russell said, you're now creating that mat and that armor, the soil to now preserve that moisture and not let it escape to the atmosphere. So guys, yeah, this, I, is just, this has just been mind blowing and, and awesome. Um, I so wanna, I, 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 sorry, Rick, I kind of sidebarred that question about evaporation. I, let me just say this, wind, sun, temperature on soil surface, your evaporation rate off the soil surface. Everybody thinks that we got to let soil rest to get water into it in semi-arid environments. Yes, you can have transpiration through cover crops that is greater than the evaporation rate. That's why it's important to have relatively short growing cover crops, drought tolerant species, water uh, uh, cover crops that don't use a lot of water because the shading effect and the reduction of wind on that soil surface will actually give you a net gain in a lot of cases with water. Now you couple that with increased water infiltration roots and water holding capacity that just enhances the effect. So Ray Archuleta was famous for telling people cover crops don't use water. And if Ray said that right now today, I'd still kind of give him a backhand slap right here in this room in front of everybody. Cause I used to tell him that's not true. Cover crops in fact do use water, but what Ray was saying, and he, and he knew this uh, was just that if you do it right, you're gonna have a net gain in total water across the year because you're reducing the evaporation to a point lower than transpiration and you're increasing that infiltration and that holding capacity. So that's yeah. really where the value is. Yeah, and I think, you know, in all environments, this water infiltration rate is, is huge because we don't get these uh, 24 hour three quarter inch rain events anymore. We get three and four inch downpours and Russell gets uh, weather events named after people that come in and just wipe everything out. So it just, you know, and out where, you know, I spoke out with no toll on the plains this year. And I, you know, I think I'm a pretty good farmer in Midwest, but you go out, I don't, I don't hold a candle to those guys out there. I mean, they are learning how to take advantage of eight inches of rain a year. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Yeah. Well, guys, this has just been awesome. I want each of you to give some closing comments and we're going we're gonna to wrap this up. And I do want to say one thing. Um, Tony asked if these are going to, if these are recorded and are they going to be available in the future? And Tony, yes, they are. We will package these together in, in groups of five or six and then go to Apple or uh, TikTok and they will be available for podcast viewing. Uh, great response from the crowd tonight. Thank you. Russell, let's start with you. How do you want to shut this down tonight? I just tell farmers don't give up hope. Um, I know it's pretty bleak out there. It's hard to get chemicals, hard to get fertilizer. Some, some people don't even know what they're going to get. Uh, do the best you can. And if there's anybody, I mean, Rick, you understand how I am and my thought process, but anybody that needs help, feel free to reach out. Um, where that's what we're here for is, uh, we don't have a silver bullet, but we're, I'm willing to give my time and my effort to, to help people with, with changing plans and management strategies. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Lance. Of a closing comments. I could speak for another 20 minutes on this. Um, okay. look, 
I don't envy farmer positions. I'm not in a farmer's position. I was trained as a scientist. I was not trained as a mechanic, an agronomist, a chemist, a seed salesman, tax guy, CPA, name it. That's by definition a farmer. So I don't envy your position. It's unbelievable what you're going up against. Um, and now you're required to market your own stuff and do all the other things, right? But here's what I'm going to say. There is hope on the horizon. People are getting it. Consumers yep. are paying attention. Yep. Large companies are paying attention. It is happening. And now you've got the opportunity to go out and just listen to yourself for a minute. I know you, common sense, you know, you have the power of observation, but you've been told you don't know you're just a farmer. You're not just a farmer. You're everything I just named. You're a CEO, a business owner, a mechanic, all of those things. Use that power that you have as a producer. Listen to yourself. You know your land better than anybody else. Not your agronomist, not your fertilizer salesman, not me. Not the legend, Dr. Rick Haney. Yeah. You know your land. If you know it works, to hell with the university who tells you it's not triple replicated, blocked out. Who cares? You know it works. Do we have to know exactly why? No, we don't. It works. Do it. Keep doing it. Reach out. Leverage the community. We were all here to help, but you help yourself too. And if you keep doing it, it will come together. People are paying attention. It will happen. Oh, that's, that's great. I, guys, this has just been awesome. Absolutely awesome. So many, so many different thought processes, but yet we're all headed for the same goal. Um, thank you, Lance. Uh, again, get, let's give your website. And if you want to throw out your phone, I don't know how you want people to reach out, but go ahead and do that right now, please. Uh, yeah. So Lance Gunderson, Regen Ag Lab, R-E-G-E-N-A-G-L-A-B.com. Um, my personal cell phone number, 308-440-1681. And if I'm up all night answering your phone calls, they're just going to get more entertaining as the night goes on, I guarantee it. <laughs> Lance, thank you. Russell, how would you like people to get a hold of you? Uh, they can get a hold of me by email at russell, R-U-S-S-E-L-L, -S -S -E at ag, A-G, soil, S-O-I-L, regen, R-E-G-E-N.com. And uh, my cell number is 803-530-4315. And uh, me and Lance will definitely, me and, the, me and Lance will be up the rest of the night finishing this bottle and uh, be glad to help anybody. Well, how much of the bottles left, Russell? Let's see it. Well, during your talk, we have down to the last quarter. Make it proud, Rick. Guys, thank you so much. And in the chat there, uh, Liz did put Lance's email and Russell's email in the chat. If you want to quick find that and jot that down, take a picture, whatever. Oh, wow, guys. Thanks. And you know what? We're going to do this again sometime in the future. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great thank evening. You. And we will be back next week, next Thursday, 7.30 Eastern, 6.30 Central. Thanks, guys. Everyone have a great, have a great week. See ya. Thank you, Rick. Thanks, Liz. You are welcome.